0: We we started last week to talk about theology, um, and one of the markers of a healthy church is a church that has a deep theology. And for all that we talked about that, if I guess if I could sum up what I was trying to get at, is that we are a people who not only know what we believe, but we also know why we believe it. Behind every belief, that there is a mountain of evidence and thought process that feeds into the convictions that we have and how firmly we hold those convictions. I have a great concern that there are a lot of churches that, that are filled with people who know exactly what they believe, but they don't really know why they believe it. Uh, anything from uh, the, the fact that we worship on Sunday to our observance of the Lord's Supper or the fact that a congregation should be led by, uh, by a plurality of men that we call elders. Uh, many people hold these things very strongly, as they should, but, but they don't really know why they believe them. They, they just know that they believe them and they feel that very strongly. I thought back when I was sitting in my pew, kind of thinking about the sermon, I remember in the fourth grade, uh, I was a student at Southwest Elementary there in Sykeston, Missouri, and and we were on the swing set one day at recess, and there was a little girl who, who was also on the swing set, and we had an intense theological discussion about the essentiality of baptism right? And I'm just going to tell you, I gave her a piece of my mind, right? And I was right. But I didn't have a clue why I believed what I believed. I believe what I believe because I'd been told that. And it's a good thing I'd been told, and I'm still pretty convicted that what I said was right, even though it probably didn't have uh, a great deal of tact associated with it, if you could picture fourth grade Wes. But But many times when we don't understand why we believe what we believe if we only if we only know what we believe but we don't understand why we believe it well then it takes on something that has about the importance or the power or the the longevity of something that's just come from from our upbringing from our parents from our grandparents it's one of the reasons that in so many congregations you're seeing fundamental changes of of long-held doctrines because people are dismissing them as simply changing of traditions instead of convictions that ought to be held to. If we don't really understand why we believe, but we only understand what we believe, we won't have conviction in those things. You know, there are a lot of things that I have, I have very strong convictions about. Probably as a result of my upbringing. I, I really don't like it when boys wear, wear baseball hats. And they kind of cock them back. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? They like with the bill kind of flipped up like that. Travis, you know what I'm talking about? Drives me nuts. Pull your hat down on your head. It's not how you wear a hat. And this and there's a there's a style that's not it's not new anymore. But what do they call it? A is call it called a sl- slap slap? You know, I don't know what how what you call it. But but when the, when the brims are straight across. My son's got a couple hats like that. I hate it when he wears those hats. Like it just bothers me. And I, I think that's probably always going to be the case. I just feel that way. And I'm going to tell you, I feel that way pretty strongly. But here's, here's, the, here's the deal. I'm probably not going to die over that. Right? I mean, if, 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 if some boy walks in and he kind of looks like a punk because he's got his hat kind of cocked up to the side, okay, it bothers me. I don't like that. I'm not going to lose my life over that. You know what? If my son wants to wear that hat, that's fine. I I, I guess I'll just get over it. See, the problem is, I know what I believe. I don't really have a believe, I don't really have a reason to believe those things. But Christianity, our our spiritual health, it's supposed to be a whole lot more than that. We're talking about a relationship and a conviction. That we ought to be willing to die for. Be thou faithful unto death. This idea that a lifestyle that is so firmly held within our mind that we would be be willing to to lose a job, to suffer persecution, to lose a relationship with a family member. That's serious stuff, right? I'm not doing any of that over, over how you wear your baseball hat. But Christianity, that theology that lies behind what we truly believe, that's what we're called to live. So, so we ask this question, not just what do you believe, but why do you believe it? I mean, when, when you tell me you believe something, can, can you give me one place in the Bible? Can you give me any, any verse of Scripture to back up why you believe that? Or would you have to go ask your preacher? Or would you have to go look it up? And I'm, there's nothing wrong with asking your preacher. There's nothing wrong with looking it up. Those are all wonderful things. But I'm telling you, if you have to do that, you probably don't have a very strong conviction beyond the fact that you just think it's right. Learn why you believe those things. We're, we're going to teach another, a class uh, starting next week when our quarter rolls over. Uh, we have taught this class a couple years ago about how we got the Bible. And there are some, there are some scary, intricate things in that class, but, but ultimately... That class is designed so that if you get the things we're going to talk about, you will have a greater belief in the revelation that we have before us. Because it's going to go deeper in our thought process. Does this make sense? Healthy congregations have a deep theology. So what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe about His revelation? What do you really believe about this book do you really believe that this is the inspired Word of God? Or, or do you just believe that it's a, just a good book and, and it's, got, you know, it's got the words of God in it or the thoughts of God in it, but, but it's kind of intermingled with all the thoughts of men? A lot of people very sincerely believe that. And because of that, they have a very shallow theology. I mean, if it's just some the Word of God and some the Word of man, I can probably take the parts I want and neglect the parts that I don't want. We, we see that played out so many times. Tell me about your theology. But if I understand that this is the inspired Word of God, that it is inerrant, well, then when I approach the pages of the Bible, my theology is is going to change the way that I interact with that. Because it's not just, I believe it ought to be that way because, because my mother thought it should be that way. But I'm talking about the Creator God. I'm talking about the will of the One who spoke the world into existence, who sustains this world and gives us our very breath. I'm talking about the, the, the God who has died and sacrificed for me. That's the God that I'm responding to. And this is His revelation. So that, that's really the, the whole point that we're trying to get at. That, that while, Well, we might think about this idea of, of, of the, the minutiae that, that lies behind what we believe. Listen, that's where the strength lies. That's where conviction is formed rather than simply tradition is formed. That's where not just the conviction that will cause you to cause great have great change in your life but it's also the conviction that will lead to you having hope in your life and peace in your life that a shallow tradition simply will not supply you with there's a pretty interesting example of the way that theology impacts the way that that we that we view the world, that we view the Word of God. I don't know how, much, how many of you pay attention to what's going on in the, in the broader religious world, but, but in, in the last year, there's been some interesting developments in the United Methodist Church. And you can read about these things. I'm not going to give you a, even really a commentary. I just want to talk about what has happened. Now, now the United Methodist Church is, is one of the, the, what we call the, the major, major uh, Protestant mainline denominations. Um, for about the last 50 years, they, they have found themselves at the forefront of most liberal thought and liberal ideas, and I mean that in a, in a theological sort of way. Um, if there is a liberal position to be, to be taken, uh, there are typically Methodist churches, and, and I know that, that they do not, are not all the same, but there are typically Methodist churches who have adopted those positions. Well, this last February. Uh, they had a, a gathering of, I think they called the, the, their general council uh, in the city of St. Louis, I think it was towards the end of February, and they, they, were, they were going to have a vote. They were going to have a vote as to what they ought to do with the sexual revolution that we're finding ourselves in, and how do we respond to the, the LGBTQ movement, right? By the way, those are all questions that we have to answer in all of our, in our churches, Right. We have to answer that question in this church. I mean, we, we live in the midst of, of a sexual revolution that is changing everything. Now, the reason that they were having to have this discussion was because, was because their, their book of discipline was very clear. That homosexual relationships were, were sinful. Why? Well, where did they get that from? Well, they got that from the Bible. Right, and you'd be surprised. A lot of creed books. I mean, they they reflect a lot of a lot of biblical thoughts, a lot of biblical ideas. But but in many of their in many of their congregations, they had not been practicing in this way, Uh, even having the 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 ordination uh, in 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 some of their congregations of openly practicing homosexual priests and and things things of that nature. So so you had on on the one side they had their official statement like this is what we believe that was saying this is sinful. But on the other side, they had, they had congregations that were basically doing whatever they wanted to do, being very loose with their, with their sexual ethic as it approached, as it approached the, the sexual revolution. Now, these things were coming to a head because something has happened in, in, the, in the Methodist church over the, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, especially, that you may or may not know about it, but they've actually had a lot of growth. They have not had a lot of growth in, in our country. As a matter of fact, what we've seen in our country is that they're one of the most rapidly declining religious groups, but they have had a lot of growth in Africa and in Asia, of people identifying with this denominational group. And the interesting thing about, about those identifying with this religious group in Africa and in Asia is that they were much more conservative than those from the than those from, from the United States. And by conservative, I really mean that they much more believed that the Bible is God's inspired word and that we ought to listen to it, okay? I'm not defending everything they say, but I'm saying that there's going to be a, a distinction there. And so when they had their gathering to decide whether or not we should uphold this, 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 this position in their, in their book of discipline, whether or not we should uphold this idea that homosexuality is a sin, they actually voted to uphold it. But it's, it's quite staggering in terms of the denominational world because most of, most of us have just become accustomed to the denominational world just pursuing whatever liberal theology or thought is out there, right? I mean, how, how, how many times are we surprised anymore by things that we see in, in the denominational world? I mean, almost none. I just expect them to, to choose the ungodly or the unbiblical thing. They didn't do that. They actually made a choice that they were going to stand... For a biblical principle. Now, some of you have, have seen, I've actually seen locally on, on people's Facebook pages, that, that this is threatening to, to completely divide the, the Methodist church and, and how, how, it will, how it will survive or whatever. And you guys could, could get into this. But I simply am bringing up this illustration to make this point. Theology matters. What those people believed about the Bible mattered. See, there were some who did not believe that that the Bible is authoritative. There were some who believed that the Bible was authoritative. There were some who thought the things that we see in Scripture ought to change our lives. And there were some who thought the things that we see in Scripture are not necessarily the words of God. And their theology impacted the decision that they made in regards to their practice. Now, I find this fascinating because if they continue down this path, they're going to have other problems. If I want to continue, and some of these problems will be good problems for them to have, right? But if I continue down this path that says, listen, the Bible is God's inspired word. It is God-breathed. If I believe that when it comes to standing against the sexual revolution and, 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 pra- and the practicing of homosexual and transgender relationships, you know I'm also going to have a pretty big problem when it comes to women serving as preachers. Because it's the same issues. It's the same issues that are going to come up over and over. Now, my my purpose this morning is not to present a lengthy discussion on either one of these two issues. We have done that in the past. You can find those on the website. We can do that in the future. We can talk about these things. Uh, But I don't think you guys probably want two full-length sermons. No? Well, if you don't have any harder feelings than that, I'll just go ahead. Nervous laughter all around the room. <laughs> No, but I, I, don't, I don't want to give two full-length sermons. I simply want to make this point. That, that when you preach on the issue of women in the church, in leadership roles, or when you preach on something like the LGBTQ movement, that it's the same sermon. It's the same sermon, and you may change the topic, and you may change some of the verses that you deal with, but all of the points, they are the same. You're going to start off with a very clear biblical admonition about what is right or what is wrong. Now, there are some who are going to try to, to deny what is clearly taught in the Bible. Now, there are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand, right? P- Peter would acknowledge as much. I mean, you know, we, we, we just... We spent two quarters in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, and my head still hurts from that, okay? I mean, there are a lot of things that, that are very difficult, but there are a lot of things that are really clear. And I just want to warn you that anytime you have someone try, trying to confuse you and trying to say that the Bible doesn't mean what it clearly says, you need to be leery of that person, because they're not doing you any favors, Anytime someone is trying to tell you that the only way that you can really know the will of God is if you sit down and you listen to them for the next 15 hours. Come on. But if I want them to be right, then I might listen to that. I might, I might, I might wade my way through that. That's dangerous theology. So you start off with these very clear admonitions from the Word of God. And then you have reactions. You have reactions that hinge on your theology and what you believe about the Word of God. So l- let me see if we can illustrate as we, as we walk through some of these. Uh, our, probably our key verse when it comes to the, to the role of women in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 11, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, can I tell you that in the year 2019, I would never ever say those things? They are politically incorrect. If I wasn't reading straight from the Word of God, I mean, there's a way that seemeth right to a man. And I'm telling you, this is one of those issues where as I'm a product of our culture also, ah, this doesn't quite seem to, to flush up. But yet, there it is in the Bible. Can I tell us that this text is not about ability, it's not about talent, this text is not about value or worth. The Bible, we've talked a few weeks ago about men and women being fellow heirs of the grace of God. Um, The truth is there's nothing that a woman cannot do. There are only certain contexts that they can't do it in. They're restricted by God. This text is about submission. Submission to the way that God has set up His church and the way that God has has, has designed those things. But I like this verse because it's so clear. On a subject that that, that there is so much confusion on, there's so many odd things that are said about. Well, what about this and what about that? You've probably had those conversations, right? This is one of those verses that I just think helps a lot. And it keeps me from giving my opinion and it helps me to stay very focused on what is God's revelation. Do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So you say, well, can a woman do this? Well, is that teaching or having authority over a man? If it's not, wonderful, go do it. The role of a woman is a lot more than just making food for the church potluck, right? Which we're having in two weeks, mark the calendars. But, but that, I mean, that, it, it's a whole lot more than that. But if it is teaching or having authority over a man, no, and God, God doesn't allow that. God doesn't, pr- pr- God doesn't permit those things in His church. It's pretty clear. If you people want to talk about 1 Corinthians and what it says and maybe this or that, well, I don't know. Not to teach or have authority over a man. Now, we could talk more, but I told you I wouldn't preach two sermons. But many people look at this verse and and they say, well, I see the verse, but here's what you have to understand. Paul was a product of a certain culture, and that culture impacted the things that he said some some people would say that Paul was just sexist because people in that time were sexist you know sometimes we we look at people and we we see the the things that they do or the things that that, that they say and we say well they just don't know any better you ever feel that way about like um and everyone can do this you ever feel that way about your parents or your grandparents right and maybe that maybe they'll say something and you'll say well you know that they just don't know any better right they they they're just they're from a different time when when that you know people just kind of looked at that differently when i was a kid i remember i remember um, in between bible class and worship at the shady acres church of christ okay in between bible class and worship you could go outside and you know who was outside every man in the congregation is it like a four or 500 member congregation every man in the congregation was outside smoking a cigarette I'm just trying to picture what it would have been like this morning if every man in the Forest Park congregation went outside to smoke a cigarette. I'm going to say it's a different culture, right? Well, so as we see these things, sometimes people are saying that's what Paul was. Paul just didn't know any better. I mean, that, that's just the way people talked about women back then, but now, now we're more enlightened. Now, as we know, we've had the, the, the feminist movement that has come through our nation, and, and we, we just see things differently. So, the point I want to make is that Paul's argument is not cultural. Do, do I believe that the things that I read in the Bible are just a product of, some, of culture? Or do I believe they are the revelation of God, not dependent on culture? Well, pretty clearly in this text, pretty clearly in this text, we have something that has nothing to do with culture. We have a statement that is true in, in, in a society where women are oppressed, and a statement that is true where, where women are elevated. Which, by the way, is what Christianity always does. You may get tired of me, of me saying it, but, but you look at, at every, every civilization where Christianity is not present, and you will see the oppression of women, even and especially in our godless society. It hasn't elevated women. It's made women into objects. But in this text, he actually tells us why this is the case. And God doesn't always do that, by the way. God doesn't always say, well, let me explain to you why we're doing He doesn't do that. But in this case, he does. The reason, the rationale, for it was Adam who was formed, who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. What is he saying? Why is it that he's saying that a woman is not the teacher of authority over a man? He says it's because of creation, because of the creation order And because Eve was deceived first, has nothing to do with culture. Has nothing to do with with, with what they thought about women in Rome or Ephesus or anywhere in the first century. Has everything to do with what happened in the garden. Now, is that still the case today? Was Was man still created first? Was Eve still first deceived? Well, of course that's still true. Well, then the implication, the application is still true. Notice, I just think the point that Paul's argument is not cultural. People want to dismiss 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 by saying, well, that's just a, a cultural thing. No, it's not. It's a creation thing. Well, there are other people who, who want to say, well, okay, I see the verse, but you have to learn to read Paul through Jesus. Right? Now, in our minds, we, I mean, if we were kind of ranking, you know, we would I think we would quite naturally put, Jesus above Paul, right? He's the son of God, right? And Paul was a man like you and I, even he spoke by inspiration. But then but, that's what they're saying is you need to read Paul through Jesus. Matter of fact, there are many, many congregations in our own brotherhood who have embraced the idea of women, even, even in the pulpit. And, it, and they're very public about this. I'm not talking about people that, that haven't talked about themselves. In their, in their justification, what they say is you have to read Paul through Jesus, the old old way of talking about it, people would talk about a, a red letter hermeneutic, right? You know, you got to put extra stress on the red letters. Those are the words of Jesus. For in most in a lot of modern a lot of modern Bibles, and so somehow Paul is just secondary. And you know, Jesus doesn't say anything about this. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus always elevating women. I just talked about that, right? Well, we see we see this that Jesus doesn't say anything about this. So so why should we have this prohibition? I want us to understand that, that if we, have, we have a problem if we're trying to play Jesus against Paul. It's what he talked about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? So, some are saying, I, uh, I am of Cephas, some I am of Apollos, some I am of Paul, some I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? I mean, do we have one church saying this and one church saying that? that, that that's the problem with denominationalism today, right? The idea that we can have all these, different, all these different beliefs because we don't really believe they came from God. Do we have Paul saying one thing and Jesus saying something else? Not at all. Paul is not opposed to Jesus. Matter of fact, if you read the words of Paul, read what he said about himself. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So Paul says, when I preach, when I I tell you these things, when I write, for example, 1 Timothy or whatever epistle you want to talk about, what I'm delivering to you is, it is the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, my message is the message of Christ. I'm preaching Jesus. This is the testimony of God. By the way... It's almost exactly what Jesus said about Himself in John chapter 12 and verse 49. Jesus said, For I did not speak of my own initiative, but my Father Himself who sent me has given me commandment. What to say and what to speak. Jesus says, These aren't my words. These are the words of the Father. Paul says, These aren't my words. These are the words of the Father. And so when people want to play Paul and Jesus against each other, well, they're setting up an impossible theology, a weak theology. But it happens all the time on this issue. Now, move, move this same lesson to talk about the LGBTQ movement. That's very real, isn't it? And I would imagine that most of us are probably more uncomfortable with the LGBTQ movement than we are with women's roles in the church. Probably because, probably because I've just seen a lot more of women's roles in the church being, being expanded beyond, what, beyond what, what, what Scripture would allow. I mean, this, this sexual revolution, it's, just, it's a newer thing. I mean, it has moved at light speed over the last, I know in the 20 years I've been in ministry, we're talking about a whole new ball game than we were talking about when I first got into ministry. But however you want to talk about it, we have some very clear biblical prohibitions, right? That's where we start. Do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. See, there are people who are going to try to deceive you about this, going to try to, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extorters will inherit the kingdom of God. I understand the context that he's looking back at at their previous life, and and he's going to say the the whole point is, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified uh, by, by the blood of Christ. But he's saying that's something that kills a man. Don't think that you can actively practice those things and still be right with God. Don't be deceived in that. It's a pretty clear statement. Yeah. Any more than people that want to say that adultery is okay, or or idolatry is okay, or or being a thief is okay, or being a drunk is okay. It's not. And people give their, their explanations all day long and preach incredibly long sermons trying to justify. It's just not. Don't be deceived in that. If you do that, you're not going to go to heaven what it's what paul says well how do people respond to that see it's not that people can't read the bible people respond in the same way they respond to the women's roles in the church well you know that's a cultural thing i mean obviously they weren't as open-minded as we are in our world today to to know that this insanity that we live in today that men are women and women are men I don't even know sometimes how to address that without being incredibly crude. It ought to be so clear to us, okay? But, but this idea that he just didn't know any better. Paul just didn't know any better. Well, by the way, they had those things in the first century, right? But they were condemned in the first century. Paul's argument's not cultural. He's not, he's not, he's not just some, some sort of a homophobe or, or a bigot, as, as, some, as some people w- w- would try to make him out to be. No, he says, I'm giving you the testimony of god right romans chapter 1 and verse 27 he speaks of of a man that has abandoned god likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due now people want to deny that that's what the bible is talking about i mean those words seem very clear to me okay he says there is a natural way a man and a woman. That's very natural. That's how God created man. But people have abandoned the natural for the unnatural. Men with men, women with women. Paul's argument is not cultural, it's based upon the creation order that God has put into place. Well, you know, Jesus never talks about that. And we could debate about how much Jesus talks about it and whether he talks about it by implication. But, but I don't, I mean, I can't think of anything in the Gospels that's quite as direct as what we see in Romans 1 or First Corinthians chapter 6. But, but to understand that Paul's not opposed to Jesus, it's the, it's the same point, right? Paul's not opposed to Jesus. Matter of fact, Paul would say, we could actually play this game all day long when Paul talks about his, his revelation. He says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is bold about these things. One of the reasons people talk about Hebrews authorship and the Hebrew writer talks about how he he received these things, he learned these. Paul is going to be adamant to say, I didn't get this from nobody. I've got people that have influenced me greatly in my life. A lot of men who have influenced me greatly. Paul says, didn't happen. The things I'm giving to you, they are coming straight through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point I'm trying to make, once again, not trying to preach a sermon about women's roles in the church or or the LGBTQ movement. I'm trying to make the point of that. It's the same sermon. It's the same things that you talk about. And so while we might look at, at, at the Methodist church and we say, hey, they're going to have some problems. If they're going to, they're going to maintain th- this consistency, it's going to impact them in ways that they don't even know it's coming. By the same token, there are many of our brethren and congregations that have sacrificed what the Bible teaches about, about the role of women in the church, that have sacrificed their theology. And it's only a matter of time before they're going to have to give on this issue also. Because their theology will not, will not withhold, will not hold up their traditions. Oh, no, we would never do that. No, we would never allow that. For what reason? If it's just your tradition, yeah, you're going to compromise. Healthy churches have... Deep theology, and this goes deeper than these two two issues, but I just thought these two issues are so parallel in the arguments that that we're seeing coming coming from both sides. It helps us see that it's not just what you believe, it's why you believe those things. Healthy churches. Healthy churches understand that our theology matters. I want you to believe the right things. I, I, I believe in indoctrination. Okay, I know that's a dirty word for some folks, but, but, but I think it's a good word. I think we ought to know what we believe. We, we, we want our children to come up to, to know what they ought to believe, what is right and what is wrong. But if you only know what you believe and not why you believe it, you're not going to have a strong faith. You're not going to have a faith that will transform your life and the life of others. You're not going to have a faith that, 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 that you will see even to the point of death you're not going to have a faith that will produce the hope and the peace and the joy that we're so desperate for. But if I have a deep theology, it will change me. It will motivate me to be transformed. Not by the power that is tradition, but by the power that is the revelation of the Creator of all man. Theology matters. Proverbs says in Proverbs 14 and verse 22, There is a way which seemeth right to a man, but it is a way which leads to death. There are lots of things that I think are right. There are lots of things that feel right to me. But if I let that be my guide, I will lead myself astray. I can't think of many verses in the Bible that make me shake more than that one. If I just do what Wes thinks is best, I'm going to have a problem. And his point His point is, you look to the ways of God. But the question becomes for us, will we submit to those things? We we saw that with the General Council of the Methodist Church in February. We see that in congregations all over our brotherhood this very day. But we see it in this room. Will I submit to the will of the Heavenly Father? We live in this world that says, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. I'm my own man. Well, if that's the course that we choose to to, to pursue in our spiritual lives, we will die. We will die as a congregation. We will die as a movement. We will die as individuals. But if we humble ourselves, not before a man, not even before a great man, if we are willing to humble ourselves before God Himself, that's where we'll find life. That's where we'll find that life that is everlasting. Not a religion that's about me, but a religion that is about my God. Allow your theology, what you know and what you believe about the one who created the world, what you know and what you believe about his divine revelation, what you know and you believe about his nature and how he interacts with mankind. Let that move you. Let it move you this morning to obey the gospel if you have not. Let it move you this morning to be immersed for the remission of your sins if you have not. Let it move you this morning to have your sins washed away if they have not been. Let it move you to repent. Let it move you to take your burdens and your anxieties and cast them upon him. Men don't do those things unless they are responding to that great I am. You respond to him this morning. Allow your theology to be more To be more than a tradition. But let it be something that changes everything. You come this morning. If you have a need. As we stand and as we sing.